Good morning. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave Baker. I am a member of Summit Crossing. My family and I attend the uh, Madison location. And uh, I'm also a missionary in transition sent by you and uh, by Summit Madison with my family and uh, another family from Summit Crossing as missionaries to the international refugee community of Nashville. Uh, I just wanted to say uh, it's such an amazing uh, privilege and honor to uh, be partners with you in the gospel uh, work of Jesus Christ to those who uh, have for so long never heard the name of Jesus. So thank you. Uh, thank you as a church. Thank you as uh, the many families that are, are supporting us. Uh, I want to just quick update on that front. Um, we've been uh, praying and trying to sell our house for some time. Uh, and as of this last week, we have uh, renters moving in this Friday. Uh, so yes, amen. Um, my wife and I went to Nashville and back yesterday and signed a lease on an apartment. We'll be uh, loading up a truck Tuesday and we'll be full time all the way up there by the end of the month. And so we just want to praise God with you for that and uh, ask you to continue praying for us as we seek to uh, make disciples among international refugees full time. I have a couple of announcements I've been asked to make. One is that uh, today is the last day for donations for the DHR drive. Uh, there is a, a barrel out in the uh, front hallway there where you can drop those off. And the other is that, uh, speaking of Nashville, uh, there is, uh, excuse me, Summit Crossing is having uh, taken a couple trips to Nashville to work on the Refuge House. And the Refuge House is the mission house of City Church Network, who is the partner church that we are working with in Nashville. So uh, they're doing some renovations, they're doing some work. They wanted to let you guys know that they have almost all the volunteers needed for those two trips, which are going to be this Saturday and next, uh, but they still need some donations of supplies. So I just direct you to, in your uh, worship guide, in the announcements, it's right there in the middle, and I won't read all that for you. If you have a Bible or if you can find one near you, I'd encourage you and invite you to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5, where in a moment we will read the text for this week's sermon. If you weren't here last week, and if you haven't yet listened online to the message by Pastor Joey Thompson, I just would strongly encourage you to download it from summitcrossing.org or your podcast app. Uh, Joey had been asked uh, some time ago, to kick off a teaching series that we are calling Kingdom Citizens. And in this series, we want to wrestle together as a church with uh, questions like, what does it look like for us uh, to live in this incredibly broken world as citizens of God's kingdom? That brokenness was especially front and center for all of us week before last. And that brokenness is, of course, still around us in a million tragic ways. So to answer that and other questions, we are turning to Jesus in this series, to his famous teaching on the kingdom known as the Sermon on the Mount. And as we listen to Jesus and ask him these tough questions, how, how, what, do we, what does it look like for us to be kingdom citizens in this broken world? Uh, I'm sure that many of us will find his answers are not at all the answers that we would expect. See, Jesus makes a habit of defying expectations. In the opening chapters of the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus has come into this world as a king, but not at all a king like what we would expect. 
We see him declaring the gospel of the kingdom and saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But as you read through the book of Matthew, you see that it's not at all a kingdom like what you would expect. And then last week, as Pastor Joey uh, walked us through the Beatitudes, the intro section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we saw that the citizens of this kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, are in many ways not at all the kinds of citizens that you would expect. Jesus says it's the spiritually bankrupt who actually possess the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. If you, if you want to own the kingdom of heaven, you have to be poor. You have to have nothing. It's not the strong and the violent who conquer the world. It's the meek who inherit it. Jesus says the kingdom citizens are not those who are currently filled to the top with their own righteousness, as people would uh, often suspect. Rather, they have no righteousness of their own at all, and so they hunger and thirst after it. As you read the Beatitudes, you get the impression that to qualify for the kingdom of heaven, you have to have something profoundly wrong with you. And you do. And yet these messed up people are called pure in heart, sons of God, and so committed to righteousness that they are gladly willing to endure persecution because of it. The kingdom of heaven is a very strange place. Many people have described it as an upside-down kingdom. And that's true in a sense, but it would probably be more accurate for us to say that it's a right-side-up kingdom in an upside-down world. The values and the thinking of the whole world are so sinfully twisted that when the king of heaven himself shows up as one of us to tell us how to be fully human, his teaching sounds completely upside down to us. But he is, in fact, telling us how to be fully human, which is the point of verses 13 to 16, which is the beginning of our text this morning. In verse 13, Jesus says, after having said the Beatitudes and talking about here's who's in the kingdom of heaven and if this is you, blessed are you, he says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, we get all kinds of creative in in trying to interpret the salt of the earth passage and we say, okay, well, let me think about the kinds of things salt does and try to figure out which one Jesus had in mind and how we're kind of like that. Maybe we're, maybe we're a preservative on the earth or maybe we're a, a healing agent on the earth or maybe we're an irritant on the earth like salt in a wound. I've heard that preached. All kinds of stuff uh, that we uh, hear said. The, the problem with thinking about uh, the passage that way is that we end up jumping outside of what Jesus did say to what we think he might have been saying and make that the main point. And what we do is we miss what he said. Jesus is saying there are certain distinctive characteristics of salt that make it what it is. And without them, it's useless. The, the point of the salt of the earth is you, Jesus is saying, hey, you know what's good about salt? It's salt. If it wasn't, It's good for nothing. In the same way, Jesus is saying, the character of a kingdom citizen that he had just laid out in the Beatitudes is essential to God's purpose for kingdom citizens. A person who claims to be in the kingdom of God but lives like they're not is as pointless as saltless salt or invisible light. He goes on to make the same point in verse 14. You are the light of the world. 
A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So two metaphors back to back with the same point. Stated negatively, salt is no good if it's not salty. So don't lose your saltiness. Stated positively, light is good when it lights things. So maintain your light. This character that I've said is essential to a kingdom citizen. Hold fast. Don't let endurance uh, squelch your light or or, uh, make you lose your saltiness. Continue. Persevere. Be the fully human kingdom citizen that God created you to be. So Jesus is saying, be sure you're marked by the humble, pure-hearted, mercy-loving character of a kingdom citizen so that you will be what you were made to be, a person who glorifies God by the way that you live. Now, Jesus might, because of the the upside-down nature of the Beatitudes, he might still have people scratching their heads and wondering if he's some kind of crazy heretic trying to throw out the Old Testament and replace it with something different. And if they're not wondering that yet, Where he's about to go in a few uh, sentences might really make them wonder that. So he pauses here and gives a big disclaimer. Look at me, look with me, excuse me, if you would, at verses 17 to 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota is the the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks something like a comma. Uh, A a dot is referring to uh, the the smallest little corner of a letter that separates one Hebrew letter from another. Uh, And he's saying the smallest little details of what God wrote in the law will not pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I'm glad that's clear. That's the end of our passage for this week. Any questions? No? Good. All right, let's go. Let's pray. This is a hugely problematic passage for us. Jesus just said, and I think he wants us to understand him as saying, the king, excuse me, the citizens of the kingdom are those who keep the whole law down to the very least commandment. Y'all, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. How many of them do you know? And he said, kingdom citizens must keep the law better than the Olympic gold medal winners of professional law keeping, the scribes and the Pharisees. These guys devoted their whole lives to studying and to meticulously keeping the law. And Jesus says, do better than them or you'll never enter the kingdom. This is a huge problem because it sounds like Jesus is teaching that we get saved by our works. Doesn't it? He sounds like that several times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For the sake of time, here's just one example. Matthew 7, 21. 
towards the conclusion. Okay, summing up now, what am I talking about? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, Jesus, are we saved by grace or are we saved by works? We at this church, uh, as a huge section of Orthodox Christianity, believe that uh, we are saved by God's grace and not by any good works that we do. But some of these things make you wonder if Jesus agrees with us. Let's make it a little harder. On top of that, I, ju- I really want us to wrestle with this text and to, and to not just skim over it and, and make light of it. On top of all that, Jesus sounds like he is contradicting several other teachings in the New Testament about how we as Christians relate to the Old Testament law. So, for example, uh, Paul is notorious for this. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, You, talking to Christians, have died to the law through the body of Christ. Two verses later, Romans 7, 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Romans 6, 14, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. One more, Galatians 2, 21, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. A couple months ago when we took a a team of students from here to Nashville uh, and did some mission work and also got to experience some of the uh, other uh, religious and and ethnic communities there, uh, a Muslim gentleman told us that there were contradictions in the Bible. So I said what I always say, which is, can you name one? And he said, yes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he said, and Christians like to stop there. But he goes on to say, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter of the law will pass from the law. Therefore, whoever does them and teaches them is right. And whoever relaxes the least commandment and doesn't uh, and teaches others to do the same, you shouldn't listen to him. And then this Muslim gentleman said, and the apostle Paul said, you're not under the law. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to worry about the law. So then this Muslim man said, therefore Jesus said, don't listen to Paul. I followed up with a question that I hoped was thought-provoking, and it was not a context where it would have been appropriate for us to uh, engage in rigorous debate. But uh, spoiler alert, I don't think he's right, and I'd like to show you that this morning. But this is a big deal, right? A lot of skeptics, Muslim, atheists, agnostics, a lot of skeptics of Christianity claim that Jesus and Paul preached contradictory messages. They didn't, but sometimes Christians still act like they did, and that's insanely dangerous. What I mean is a lot of people run to Jesus to save them from hell, and then they read Jesus more, and they run to Paul to save them from Jesus. They say, I like Jesus in John 3.16, talking about whoever believes has eternal life, but I don't like this law stuff in Matthew 5, so let's just gloss over that and go straight to Romans, and we'll, we'll talk about being dead to the law, and I don't have to figure out what Matthew 5 is about. Let's read Romans instead. That's dangerous for several reasons, but partly because it misses the point of the Sermon on the Mount. There are a lot of different threads in the Sermon on the Mount, but the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is, you ready? It's a sermon. I know. Hang with me. It's not a collection of disconnected sayings. 
It's not a, a string of sermonettes on different topics. It's actually a single unified message with one main point. So everyone that was in the crowd that day heard the whole thing in one sitting, and the Sermon on the Mount makes more sense like that. Jesus knew that what he was saying about the law here was controversial and would be controversial, and he said it that way on purpose. But he goes on in the rest of the sermon to give us the resolution of the dilemma that he sets up here. See, the good news of the kingdom of God is, among other great news, yes, it's true you must keep the law, but not at all in the way that you would expect. So to let Jesus resolve this dilemma for us, let's take a step back this morning and look briefly at an overview of the whole Sermon on the Mount and just see it on its own terms, and then we'll see what Jesus was really saying. All right? I mentioned to a friend out in the lobby, uh, this is going to be a different kind of sermon this morning because, at least to me, this is a, a different kind of text. So uh, to see how Jesus sets up the problem here and then resolves it later, we need to step back and see the whole flow of thought. So one way to see the flow of thought in the Sermon on the Mount is to think of two sets of bookends, one inside the other, with a big section in the middle connecting the bookends. We're going to have some stuff on the screen in a minute that, that helps with this. I, I know we're getting a little technical, but hang with me. This, I think this will help. Here, here's what I mean. The beginning and the end of the Sermon on the Mount correspond to one another. We'll go ahead and put the first one on the screen here. Oh, you already got it. Great. The the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a description of true kingdom citizens. This is the Beatitudes and the salt and the light. Who's in the kingdom? The Beatitudes are bracketed or bookended with, at the beginning, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the theme. Who's in the kingdom? And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, with the the last section there, we see he gives uh, four contrasts, uh, talking about the destinies of true versus false kingdom citizens. So there are people who think they're in the kingdom and they're not really, and there are others who really are in the kingdom. And he gives those four contrasts uh, at the end there. There are two gates and two ways. One's leading to everlasting life, one's leading to destruction. There are two trees that bear different kinds of fruit. One's going to bear eternal life and the other is going to be cut down and cast in the fire. There are two supposed kingdom citizens who say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, but one has done the will of my father and he's coming in and the other didn't and he's not. And then there are two foundations upon which two houses are built. And at the last day, the waves of the wrath of God are going to come against those houses, and only the one built on a true foundation is going to stand. That passage is not talking about uh, having uh, everything go well in your life. When the troubles of life come, you'll you'll kind of float along. Uh, That is true, but the the passage is talking about uh, are you going to heaven or not? So the... First bookend, description of true kingdom citizens. Final bookend, uh, destinies of true and false kingdom citizens. One step to the inside of, of those bookends is the second set of bookends. The first one is the one that we're looking at this morning. Uh, and, and both of them, you'll notice that they correspond to one another because they, they're the only place in the whole Sermon on the Mount that uses the phrase law and the prophets. Jesus picks up the phrase law and prophets at the beginning and then he develops an idea along those lines and he comes back at our second bookend here to conclude that thought so we're going to get to the conclusion in a second but everything in between there is him making a case for what he's saying in these two bookends so in this first law and prophets bookend we see that he's saying the law and the prophets are fulfilled by christ and yet lived out by kingdom citizens 
So this is really the thesis statement of the whole book. Jesus, excuse me, of the whole sermon. Jesus fulfills the whole Old Testament, but the scribes and the Pharisees are false teachers. He's saying they don't just relax the least of the commandments. They relax all the commandments. That's why they're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. Then the whole middle section of the sermon is building a case against the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He's contrasting the way they've twisted and misinterpreted the Old Testament law and contrasted it with the true and right way to interpret the Old Testament law. And he's calling the crowd to follow Jesus rather than the Pharisees. Y'all with me so far? Anybody? No? All right. Let me start over. Let's do the whole thing again. All right. I'm going to trust that some people are with me. All right. So in the middle section there, we've got, uh, we can put uh, section C up on the board here, uh, true and false righteousness of true and false kingdom citizens. That's the theme of the letter, or the theme of the, of the sermon. Who's in the kingdom? Maybe not who you would expect, Jesus is saying, because you think the Pharisees are superstars of the kingdom, and they're not even in. So let me contrast for you their false righteousness and falsely law-keeping with the true righteousness and true law-keeping. So if you've got a bookmark, did anybody not get a bookmark coming in this morning that was on the table out there? It's all right. Okay. If you've got a bookmark, this is an attempt by the church to sort of... uh, give you a a guide to keep with you as we go through the Sermon on the Mount uh, that outlines almost the entire middle section. Okay, so not the whole Sermon on the Mount, but this middle section because it's the biggest part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you start on the side that says, obeys God to mask a corrupt heart. The top row going across from left to right is the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus saying, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. The top row is, but is, is, you've heard it said this. The bottom row is, but I say to you this. Okay? Here Jesus is saying, law-keeping that is merely external is not law-keeping. It's hypocrisy. Another way to say it is, a hypocrite will try to use their obedience to God's revealed law to bribe God. It, it goes like this, a, a hypocrite, a false uh, citizen like a Pharisee would say, okay, God, I will, I'll uh, do you the favor. I will pay you uh, this bribe of me not committing adultery. And in exchange, what I want you to do is to look the other way while I cherish the essence of adultery in my heart, lust. Or God, I'll, I'll do you the honor of not committing murder against someone, but I'm going to Cherish the essence of murder, hatred and cursing and bitterness towards other people in my heart. So I'm going to break the whole point of the law in my heart, but I'm going to pay you the bribe of external obedience so that you'll look the other way and just get off my back. That and these contrasts are kind of what's going on in that section. But the true kingdom citizen doesn't feel justified in holding a grudge. He pursues reconciliation. A true kingdom citizen makes war against the sin in his own heart and would rather cut off his hand or gouge out his eye rather than be even mentally unfaithful to his wife. So Jesus is is raising the bar of what uh, obedience to the law looks like. So there's the pattern. Let's flip over to the back. We'll go quickly here. We're not going to look at every single thing on here. In the second section, Jesus says uh, there's a... Uh, a false righteousness that performs for the praise of others. And he contrasts it with uh, the true righteousness that sincerely praises God. This is beginning in chapter 6, where he says, uh, you've, uh, 
He says, beware of performing your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward in heaven. And the point is, are you going out and showcasing yourself for how holy you are so that other people will recognize and applaud you? If so, false kingdom citizen, false law-keeping. It's not even law-keeping, it's hypocrisy. Jesus warns us not to perform righteousness in order to get the attention and approval of other people. Law-keeping that's performed for the praise of others is not law-keeping, it's hypocrisy. And then this last section, he contrasts the the false kingdom citizen has a sinfully distorted view of reality versus the the true kingdom citizen that has a graciously restored view of reality. So uh, towards the beginning there, let's see, beginning in Matthew 6, 19, he says uh, the, the section about don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. He goes on to say you can't serve God and money. The point here is, False kingdom citizens, they don't value God Almighty and his kingdom and his presence more than they value the stuff of the earth. We love things more than we love God. And he's like, if, if you don't treasure God more than riches, how, how can you be in the kingdom of heaven? Your, your whole view of reality here, your valuing of things is upside down. That second section in this last uh, chunk here. Is, is the passage about anxiety. He's saying, don't, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Flows from the last section about loving money more than God. He's saying, uh, true kingdom citizens seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto them. But false kingdom citizens, if you can't even trust God to give you the kingdom of God and his righteousness, how can you trust him to give you smaller things like money and food and clothing? So he's saying, because your valuing is upside down, because your view of reality is is sinfully twisted, you're you're anxious all the time. You can't trust God because you haven't trusted him to save you in the first place. And then lastly, false citizens judge others by a double standard. This is sort of, it crescendos into the the quintessential passage of what we think about as, as hypocrisy, which is judging other people by a double standard. So, Your view of reality, if you're this false kingdom citizen, is so twisted that somehow you feel justified in looking down on others for doing the same thing that you do, except less. Like, they've got a speck in their eye, and you've got a a telephone pole in your eye, and you're like, ha-ha, you've got a speck in your eye, sinner. And you're going to try to help them get it out, and you're like whacking them upside the head with the telephone pole because you're a hypocrite, and nobody wants to be helped by you. Jesus is saying... True kingdom citizens repent of their own sin. They get the plank out of their own eye, and then they help others repent. False kingdom citizens are not repentant of their sin. Now, there's one more contrast uh, between this section and our second bookend, and it couldn't fit on the uh, bookmark. But it's sort of a concluding, okay, Jesus says, I've made my case against the Pharisees. I've made my case for true righteousness. Uh, And then he makes this last uh, concluding contrast as sort of a verdict. If you have your Bible open, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. This is so important to see, I think, as it connects kind of all the dots between where we've been and and where we want to go. There's this really weird verse in Matthew 7, verse 6, where he says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So it's stated as a command, don't do this. But I think in light of what Jesus has been doing, don't do this, do this. It's not this way, it's this way. This is false, this is true. And then he comes right back without missing a beat and says, don't give what's holy and precious to dogs and pigs. But 
Ask and it will be given to you. What's holy and precious in the sermon? What's the theme? What's he been talking about the whole time? He just said it in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So he's stating a principle here as a verdict as a, uh, on the, the Pharisees. He's saying that the pigs and the dogs are the scribes and the Pharisees. They're false kingdom citizens. They're hypocrites. And God doesn't give them his kingdom and his righteousness because they don't want it. You, he's stating a principle. You wouldn't give your most precious possessions to your dog as a chew toy. Why? He, he has absolutely no capacity to value it and to treat it appropriately. And he's saying the same is true of the hypocrites that I've been describing this whole time. It's like they don't get in the kingdom because they don't love the things of the kingdom. They don't love grace. They don't love mercy. They love themselves. They don't love God. They love being praised by other people. And so they don't get in because they don't even really want in the true kingdom. So... Notice this contrast between verse 6 and verse 7. Same word in Greek. Don't give dogs and pigs what's holy and precious. Verse 7, but ask and it'll be given to you. So, again, the last contrast. Pharisees are out, but if you ask, you will receive the kingdom. What will be given to you? What's holy and precious? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. He just said 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And now he says, seek and you shall find. Same word in the Greek. This section, a lot of times we we treat this like a a topical selection of little sermonettes. And we come to ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. And we scratch our heads because we're like, this sounds like a blank check of health, wealth, and prosperity that I can just ask for whatever I want and I'll just get it no matter what. He's not saying you'll get anything you pray for. He's like, ask for this and you'll get it. Everyone who asks for the kingdom of God receives. Everyone who asks for God's righteousness to be credited to their account receives. If you seek God's kingdom and righteousness more than you seek even the food because you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness because you don't have any of your own, you're poor in spirit, you will receive it and you'll be filled and you'll get God forever. And then finally, having laid all that groundwork, he closes with the second bookend that we've been leading up to in verse 12. So, having indicted the Pharisees, having lifted up true righteousness, and having said the the Pharisees aren't in because they want to get in by their law-keeping, but the true law-keeping that I'm talking about isn't the basis of your salvation. It's an overflow of your salvation. You're in by faith. You're in by grace. And now he comes to Matthew uh, 7, verse 12, and says, So, Whatever you want men to do for you, or whatever you would wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. At the beginning, he said, you you have to keep the whole law down to the least commandment, better than the scribes and Pharisees. Well, how do you do it better than them? You don't do it as a way to get in. You don't do it to show how great you are. You don't do it to manipulate God into giving you something else that you want. You do it as an overflow of a heart that is so thankful that you've received his grace. We keep the law not as a necessary basis of salvation. We keep the law as a necessary evidence of salvation. We keep the law not to be made right with God, but because we've already been made right with God. And then this contrast, it's not what you would have expected about the law. He says, we keep the law not even in the same method You don't go to the 613 bullet point list and say, okay, I'm going to try this, try to do all these things the best I can. That's not even the way you would go about keeping the law as a justified sinner. 
The way you keep the law as a justified sinner is by looking to the glory of God in Christ, being forgiven by him, humbly coming to him as a child to a father who gives him good gifts and say, I need you to to make me right with you because I don't have anything of my own. And when he forgives you, you're so thankful that you want to go out and do to other people what he did to you. He says, do unto others what you would want done unto you because that's how God treated you in the gospel. God looked at you and you said, I've got nothing, would you help? And he said, yes, I love you, I want to help you, you're my child, I love you. And you said, that's so beautiful. God, I didn't deserve that, he didn't have to do that, but I'm in, I'm forgiven, I'm righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. How could you turn and go and have a harsh double standard against other people or be proud and and, and withhold from others what they need? No, you now have a heart transformed by grace that wants to do good to others and because you love them the way you want to be loved, you are fulfilling every command of the law without having to go check off a list. How do you keep even the least commands of the law? You come to God humbly like a child to a father Ask him to do for you what you could never do for yourself and then go love others the way God has loved you. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So when Paul, in other contexts, if somebody says, here's a contradiction in the Bible, almost without fail, you can just say, the problem is you're probably not paying attention to the context. And then just help them kind of walk through it. In other contexts, when Paul says things like you're dead to the law and you're not under the law and you don't have to keep the law, he means you are now free in Christ from trying to please God in that old covenant kind of way, that old misunderstanding kind of way. You don't have to go to your list of 613 commandments and check them off and try to please God. No, you're free from that old way of life to a new way of law-keeping through genuine love that flows from grace. So, y'all still with me? I know we've been kind of all over. Last slide for our outline here. Our second book in for Law and the Prophets, Jesus is saying kingdom citizens live out the law through love. See how it corresponds to the first one. It's fulfilled by Christ, but it's lived out by kingdom citizens. Well, what do you mean? Well, let me make my case. And then he comes and says it's lived out through love. So let's go back and briefly look again at our text. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. I want to see some more glory of Jesus in this passage and then we'll be done. How did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? And when we say law and prophets, that's a a biblical phrase for the whole Old Testament. In verse 17, he said, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's only because Christ has fulfilled the whole Old Testament for you that you can be justified by grace, that you can be forgiven uh, without any reference to your merit or any reference to your record. It's because Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. So by obeying the whole law, he achieved a righteousness that can be credited to those who trust in him. He fulfilled the Old Testament by dying on the cross in our place so as to fulfill all the sacrificial laws on our 
behalf. Jesus represents us to God as a priest forever, so he fulfills all the priestly laws on our behalf. Jesus came to inaugurate the new covenant uh, that is uh, fulfilling what many Old Testament prophecies say, like this one in Ezekiel 36. Listen to this. God said through the prophet Ezekiel, foretelling the coming uh, new covenant that would come in Christ, he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. So Christ is coming to take care of all the ceremonial cleansing laws for us as well. He's going to sprinkle us in our hearts and make us clean. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Ezekiel 35:26. just continuing on, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's saying, this is what Jesus is saying. Yes, you're going to fulfill the old covenant. I'm not saying something different, but it's not what you would have expected. It's now a different way of law keeping because it flows from the heart, just like the prophets promised. The kingdom of heaven is already here in part, but it's not yet here fully. And we'll see more of that as we go throughout uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. But when it does arrive in its full at the second coming of Christ, those who have trusted in Christ in this life for forgiveness and cleansing will be let in. And each one of those people who have trusted Christ for forgiveness in this life, he has given them a new heart that delights in the law of God by loving other people. Jesus was not saying, and we're closing here, Jesus was not saying, like, so so what do I do? How do I live as a kingdom of heaven in this horribly broken world? And and am I just going to measure up against other people or just find a religious code and do the best I can to try to get in at the last day? He's not saying the good works that you do are the basis on which you enter the kingdom. He's saying the good works that you do are the necessary evidence that you will enter the kingdom because I've already fulfilled the law for you. So please, this morning, I I meant it when I said this, this really might be not at all what a lot of us would have expected from this passage and partly because in our church culture, a lot of folks uh, like the idea of being forgiven, but uh, because it gives them a, a, a second chance. You ever heard that God is a God of second chances? And what we what we mean is, well, I know I messed up, but I, I could do better. And, and I'm really going to stand on my record of what I'm going to try hard to do once God forgives my past. So we come to Jesus just to wipe the slate clean enough for us to really show that we're going to be righteous enough. And that's the way a lot of people go about what they think is the Christian life. And that may be you. And Jesus is saying, don't do it. Despair of ever doing enough good. Despair of trying to prove yourself to me. You'll never be good enough to prove yourself to God. Praise God, you don't have to. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's open to beggars and unrighteous people who are made righteous by Jesus. So if you'll humble yourself and say, You're, no, I can't, I, I can't do that formula anymore. I can't just keep asking for more and more second chances to prove myself. I just need to throw myself down. I'm a sinner and I can't change myself. And you can change me, but even then it'll be grace. It won't be something that I've performed. So God, would you just forgive me and let Jesus be my only righteousness. Let Jesus be my only goodness before you and the, the only reason I get into heaven. And if you will do that today, ask and you will receive. 
Seek and you'll find. Knock and the kingdom of heaven this morning will be opened unto you. You can do that where you're sitting this morning. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is right here available to you. And then as as you've trusted him, those of you who are, are already believers and those of you who may now be becoming believers, Let's, let's be amazed at the grace of God towards sinners like us. And let's go love other people the way he's loved us. Even your enemies and even those who see the world very differently than you do. Love them as radically and as sacrificially as you have been loved. And so prove yourself to be a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we praise you. Oh, what a glorious gospel. What a glorious good news of the kingdom that we we don't have to prove ourselves at all. That Jesus has done all the work and you just give it freely because you love like a good father to children. Lord, would would you birth more children to yourself this morning? Would you call even now people to lay down their pride, lay down their self righteousness, and trust Jesus to be the only goodness that matters. Lord, would you fuel in us. Lord, show us by this grace so much of your beauty and your glory and the amazement of the gospel that we want to go out and love others the way you've loved us. And God, would you let this light of love and self-sacrifice so shine before the world around us that others would see the way we live and glorify you and not us. In Jesus' name we pray.